Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15, I would encourage all of you to look at a Bible. There's probably one in the seat near you, a black hard copy of the Bible. It's on page 903. The reason I ask you to turn there is because when I make reference to the Bible, I want you to know I'm not making these things up. They are coming right out of the Bible, just as God has given them to us. I tell people often, if you come here to hear what I think, you're wasting your time. But if you come here to hear what God has revealed, that's what's most important. And so we all need to look at God's word together. This week I was reading an article, and it was a study actually that was produced by UCLA Health Department. And that study was revealing the fact that suicide is the second leading cause of death among American young people ages 15 to 24. I was shocked by that. It gave some statistics that basically amounted to the fact that 2 in 10 young people of that age have had suicidal thoughts. One in ten have actually acted upon that, not all of them being successful. But I thought, what bad news. Young people, so much ahead of them, in great despair. You as well as I were shocked in recent weeks to hear of another shooting Another shooting at a school in which nine-year-old children lost their lives. It's bad news. Horrible news. You pick up a newspaper, open a website, turn on your phone. You read news about wars and rumors of war. There's saber-rattling around the world, boundaries are being pushed, tested, where will it end? What lies ahead of us? It's more bad news. Now, to be fair, there has always been bad news in this world. It sells newspapers, generates clicks. People know that. And there's something sinister within all of us that gravitates to the bad more often than the good. But this day, today in particular, is about good news. It's the good news we all need. Not just that we want to hear that tickles our imagination. It's the good news we must hear and we must believe. We must receive. What is this good news? This good news, as you can imagine, has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the passage that was read in your hearing today in 1 Corinthians 15 actually calls this good news. You didn't see those words in the text. However, they are there. If you look with me at verse 1 in the text, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news. 
The term gospel is a word that means good news. It was used of a herald who would come to town and speak of victory of the army. He would come and announce this great news. The victory has been won. That was a gospel. This morning, I would like to tell you the good news of the gospel as it's found here in 1 Corinthians 15. You heard some of this already. You heard it in Mike and Ellie's testimonies this morning as they testified to the fact that they were overwhelmed with bad news and even bad news about their own selves. But they come to find out that there is good news in Jesus Christ. It is the best news. And so what is this good news? How is it explained for us here in our text this morning? There's two things I want you to note this morning. The first is this. The good news is based upon historical facts. There are some things that actually happened in history that are pertinent and vital to this good news. In fact, Paul speaks of it this way in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, if Paul's saying there are some things that are of first importance and primary importance, there must be some things that aren't so important. And so here's the Apostle Paul, and he says, Let me tell you the most important thing. I want you to focus on this. And now he's going on to describe some historical facts, events that actually took place in history. And how does Paul know these things? Again, verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what Paul is saying by that is, I didn't make these things up. I didn't sit around and have a clever idea that this might start a movement. He said, what I'm going to tell you are things that I received myself. They were given to me, and we know from his other writings in the book of Galatians that Paul says they were given to me by God. And God revealed these things to me and made them known to me personally that I might deliver them to you. And so what are these facts that bring us good news? Well, very simply stated in the text in verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Jesus Christ died. Did you know that's a historical fact? People try to dispute that, and it boggles my mind that people continually try to dispute this because any person who has an ounce of academic wit to them knows this is an indisputable, undeniable fact. You say, well, you read that in your Gospels, and the Bible is just putting up this fact. No, you don't just read it in the Gospels. When you look at secular literature and historians of the day, they will all tell you Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under the command of Pontius Pilate. It's an indisputable fact. It's a historical fact. Jesus died. Here's another fact, verse 4. That he, Jesus, was buried. Christ was buried. That's a historical fact. You say, well, why why is that significant? The significance in that is just proof that he actually died. 
died. You say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, not to everybody. Do you realize there are people who will stand in pulpits like this on Easter Sunday who claim to be Christian, and when they talk about Jesus' resurrection, their idea is this, that Jesus didn't actually die. He kind of passed out on the cross. And they took his body to a, a cold tomb, and there the, the, the cold environment of the tomb kind of revived him after three days, and, and he was able to escape the tomb and walked out. And he didn't really die. It was more of a resuscitation, not a resurrection. Beloved, you had battle-seasoned Roman soldiers that executed him on the cross. To be certain that his life had actually expired, they took a spear and thrust it into his side. These men had seen death. They know death. and They were certain that the job was finished. Besides, if Jesus did swoon and somehow come back to life, how do you explain him removing the 80 pounds of spices that were wrapped upon his body at his burial, opening that massive tomb, and getting by that soldier, all those soldiers that were guarding the tomb? That almost seems more miraculous. The historical fact is that Jesus died and was buried, and thirdly, Christ was raised. He says it in verse 4. He was raised on the third day. And then he says, in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was raised just as the scriptures said it would happen. The resurrection was prophesied by Old Testament prophets. The psalmist writes in the 16th Psalm that you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. The idea that, that this death of Christ was not an entire abandonment, that he would be brought to life. That was prophesied. What I find interesting is that Jesus himself predicted this, that he would die and be raised three days later. He said it numerous times. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll read of it no less than five times. Let me show you just a couple of these. In Matthew 17, Jesus said this, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He said that to his followers. He wasn't beating around a bush about it. He made it very plain. In Matthew 20, he says the same thing. This was at another time. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus said this so often and so plainly that even his enemies understood that. They knew exactly what he had said would happen. In Matthew 27, after Jesus dies, we're told that the Jews come to Pilate and they say, we need, to, we need to seal the deal here. And here's what they say. Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud be worse than the first. 
Jesus made this very plain what would happen, that he would be crucified, buried, and rise again. And by stating that so many times, Jesus staked his ministry on this very truth. He would rise from the dead. Let me illustrate that. Let's say I told you I am going to be the starting pitcher for the Red Sox this afternoon. Why do you laugh? <laughs> seems, seems far out, right? No way. But if I said that not once, twice, three, four times, so much so that you all went out of here and you said, hey, guess what? Our pastor is going to be the starting pitcher for the Red Sox this afternoon. And if you tune into that game, or better yet, you go and you sit in those seats and you're on the mound, what are you looking for? Pastor Matt in those red socks. But if you don't find it, what do you think of me? My ministry and my character has been deeply damaged. Jesus put himself on the line and he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised in three days. But he came through. Apart from the truth of these historical facts, there is no good news. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. And maybe you're here today and you're somewhat of a skeptic and you might say, well... How do we know these facts are true? You've talked about the death, but the resurrection, come on. How do we really know that's true? Well, I'm glad you asked because that is the fourth fact that the text gives us, and it's this, that Christ appeared. Look at it in verse 5. How do I know he was alive and he was raised? We're told in verse 5, he appeared, and then it gives a number of, of, of arguments to whom he appeared, people to whom he appeared that make the claim it was a historical fact. Look at these people. These are eyewitness accounts. First, he says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Who's that? That's Peter, the apostle Peter. You've heard of him. You've read of him in the Gospels. Here's just the amazing thing about Peter. How do we know that Jesus appeared after his death to Peter? Is it just because he says so, and this is rumor? Well, where was Peter on the night that Jesus was arrested? He was with him in the garden. And you may recall the story of how Peter followed Jesus from a distance because he was interested in what was going to happen. And there we're told in the Gospels that Peter is warming himself by a fire, and there's a young girl there. And she's hearing Peter talk. And she recognizes his accent. You're not from around here. You're a Galilean. In fact, she says, I think I recognize you. I've seen you with this Jesus. You're one of his followers. Do you remember what Peter did? The Bible says that Peter swore that that was not the case. You might be thinking, okay, he cursed. He's, he's a fisherman, right? And, and he, just, he just cursed. But, but what it actually means is this. Peter gave an oath. He said, I swear by the God of heaven, I know not this man. 
I have no idea who he is. You don't know what you're talking about. He's scared and he's adamant. The Bible says he went out and he wept because the rooster crowed. And he knew that Jesus' words about him had come true. He denied his Lord. But we're told here that after Jesus was raised, he had a private meeting with Peter. What do you think they talked about? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It probably had something to do with that night and the shame that Peter felt. But do you know what we read of? How it changed Peter's life, this appearing? The next time we read about Peter, he is in Jerusalem. It's now 50 days after the crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem, and he is proclaiming to everyone who can hear him that Jesus Christ, who they crucified, is alive. I've seen him. And when he's preaching this so loudly, the authorities come and they arrest him. And they say, you've got to be quiet. You can't be talking about this. And Peter says, you tell me, should I obey you or God? And they let him out. And guess what he does? He preaches again. And he keeps telling people that Jesus is alive. Now, what changed? What changed was the fact is that Peter undeniably knew Jesus was alive. He had nothing to gain by preaching his resurrection, but everything to lose. How does he go from a denier to a public proclaimer? He's convinced of the truth. He's alive. Paul says that it's historical fact because Jesus appeared to Peter. Notice the transformation in him. And then he appeared to the 12, those chosen disciples that the Lord had handpicked to carry his message, and they too had seen the risen Christ in the upper room, and they too proclaimed the message that he is alive. In fact, they will give their lives for that message. They're so convinced of it because they've seen the resurrected Lord. He's appeared to them. And then we're told in verse 6 that Jesus on one account appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul adds, most of them are still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep or have died. What's he saying? He's saying there were these 500 eyewitnesses at one time of Jesus' appearance. Go talk to them. They're still alive. Now back to our baseball illustration. Let's say if I told you that I was the starting pitcher for the Red Sox on opening day. Well, you'd have trouble believing that as well. And I would say, go talk to somebody that was at Fenway Park that day. Maybe you could find somebody and you would start talking to people and you would say, hey, see this guy right here? He says he was the starting pitcher. And let's say you found one that said that and the next person you talked to said, yeah, that's the guy. And the third person said, yeah, that's the guy. And the fourth person said, yeah, I was there, I saw that. And the, the sixth person, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. By the time you got to 50, what are you going to think? Yeah, this sounds okay. All right, now get to 500. This is what Paul is saying. Don't take my word for it. There's 500 people that will tell you this. Jesus appeared to them. He's alive. Now, 
Then we're told in verse 7 that he appeared to James. Who's James? This isn't James the apostle brother of John. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. You know what? During Jesus' life, James did not believe in Jesus. He thought he was crazy. He's out of his mind. On one account, he came to, with his other siblings to, to take Jesus away because they said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's crazy. Listen to the things he's saying. Now, how many of you have siblings? And you have an older brother, and your older brother says, I'm God, and I'm raised from the grave. And you're saying, oh, I know you. That can't be. But Jesus appears to James, his half-brother. And James is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem, proclaiming that he's alive. I've seen him. And James will give his life for that. Finally, Paul says in verse 9, verse 8, Last of all, Jesus appeared to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Paul wasn't in that early apostolic company, but Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was one trying to stamp out this message that Jesus is alive. He was so adamant about it, he was getting permission to go different places, follow these people around, and put them to death. He's so adamant about it, being a persecutor, and yet one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him from heaven, and it changes his life. Paul is completely transformed, a 180 change from a persecutor of the church to the church's greatest promoter. How does that happen? It's an encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus appeared to him. These are historical facts. Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared in these ways. But beloved, the real good news is found not simply in the historical facts that I've relayed to you, but the real good news is found in the theological significance of those facts. Facts are one thing. We all know facts, but not every fact is a theologically significant fact. Not every fact has something to do with my soul's well-being but these facts have everything to do with your soul and your eternal destiny. Because the text says this about these facts. Look again at verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins. He died for sin. What does that mean? Well, that means Christ's death was a penalty. If you die for sin, it is a payment. A penalty is being paid. Something is being transacted. Well, what is it that's being paid? What is sin? Well, there's only one holy and just God and he created everything we see, including you. And this one holy and just God made people in his own image to live in perfection with him, to honor him and worship him and obey him. And that was God's good design from the very beginning. Sadly, 
we all fell. And we miss that perfect mark. Oh, we try. We do our best. But you know, even on your best week, there are still things about you that you say, I wish I didn't think that. It's not right to do that. It's not even right to say that. The Bible says that is sin. It is missing God's perfect mark, his perfect standard. The Bible says it this way, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of this perfect mark of worshiping and obeying God perfectly. And because that is the case, the book of Romans also teaches us that the wages or the payment for that sin is what? Is death. That's why Paul says Jesus died for sin. It was a payment. It's a penalty. But I left out a word. Did you notice that? If you go back to the text in verse 3, it says Christ died for what? Our sin. You know what that tells us? Christ died for our sins. That means his death was a substitution. Because Jesus himself was sinless. He's the only human being that ever lived on this earth that hit the mark. He was perfectly righteous. He perfectly worshiped God. He perfectly obeyed God. Therefore, he didn't deserve the penalty of death. In fact, when Jesus was being tried, he endured six trials where they tried to find something that he was guilty of so that they could condemn him. Now imagine if somebody put you through six critical, minute trials trying to find something you did wrong. Would they find anything? They wouldn't get through half of the first one with me. Here, these scrutinizing eyes on Jesus six times, and at the end of each one, they said, I. finally, they had to have some trumped-up charges. Well, he, he said this. Let's just... This is the sinless Son of God. Jesus never did anything wrong. He didn't deserve the death that we deserve because of sin. And so when Jesus died, he wasn't making payment for his own sin. But as the text says, he was making payment for your sin and for my sin. It was a right payment. In fact, the scripture puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he, that is God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was not a sinner, but he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus, our sin would be paid for and forgiven and his righteous record would become mine by faith. Someone taking your penalty? Is that good news? That's the best news. That's the gospel. And all of this happened just like the Bible said it would. Because look at verse 3 again. 
Here's the theological significance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for sin. It was a penalty. He died for our sin. It was a substitute. And Christ died according to the Scripture. What's the Scripture? It's the Old Testament Scripture that the Jews had. And what Paul is saying here is this death of Jesus wasn't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. In fact, it was a plan. This is exactly as God said it would happen. The Bible foretold that Jesus, the Messiah, would bear the penalty of our sin. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said this. I know it's a lot of text, but listen, I'll read it to you. Surely he, that is Jesus, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beloved, this is the message of the gospel. It is the truth of the gospel. This theological significance with regard to those facts. It's one thing to believe in the historical facts. It's an entirely another thing to know that this was done for me and I embrace it. He died for sin. He died for my sin. And this is just as God had planned it. What is this good news? It's that God has provided a way for you to be forgiven of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. say, well, how does that happen, Matt? What, how, how does that play out? Well, look at the text again. I have it on the screen if you'd like. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, he's speaking to people that have received this, of the good news that I what? I preach to you, I proclaim to you. Okay, now stop right there and put yourself right in this text. What's going on right now? I am what we would call preaching. There's a preacher up there. He's got a Bible open. He's proclaiming things. He's telling us about these historical facts about Jesus, their theological significance of why he did that. Paul says, this has been going on for millennia. I tell you, this is what I did with you. I preached to you, which you what? Received. What does it mean to receive these things I'm preaching to you? Do you come here on Easter Sunday and dress up and sit in the service and sing the songs and say, oh, that was great. Can't wait till next year. Or is there something about what is here in the message of this good news of the gospel that you say? This is something I don't just hear and in one ear and out the other like gossip. This is something I must receive. My very life depends on it. Paul says it's in this that you stand. 
It's on this truth that you have any footing in a world that's so full of bad news. This is the thing that you must stand upon, and by this, you're being what? Saved. You are being forgiven of your sin by claiming Christ alone as your only hope. You're being washed and saved if you'll hold fast to this word. Paul concludes this section this way in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, referring to those other apostles, so we preach, and you what? So here's my question. Have you believed? Are you a believer? I don't mean, are you a Christian because you're not a Muslim or a Buddhist? I mean, have you really believed this about Jesus? It was my sin that put him there. He was dying for me. And three days later, he rose from the grave to prove it. Do you believe that? Well, how would you receive that? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. For with the mouth, one makes confession of these things. And with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you ever called on Christ to save you, believing these things? If not, you must. You may be here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to be reconciled to God. You think you're okay. Maybe you think you have your whole life in front of you. I don't want to waste it now. I've got so much time. Nobody's guaranteed another second. You may be here and be skeptical. I'm not so sure about these things. I read so much other stuff on the internet. Well, you pick up your Bible and you search the Bible to see if what I'm telling you is so. If this is actually true. And you ask God to show it to you. And here at the end of our service, I'm just going to plead with you today. If you are a skeptic or you are just numb to these things, or maybe you're rebellious against these things and you say, yeah, I don't think that's true. I don't even think I'm a sinner. I'm just going to plead with you to lay down your rebellion and your skepticism and come to Christ. Lay it down. Your very life depends upon it. Embrace the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the righteous one, died for your sin. And through him you can be forgiven. This, my friends, is the gospel. It's the good news we all need and must hear. Would you embrace the gospel?